Welcome to this edition of the podcast, the Pillar Report and Weekly Review. And it's our opportunity here to uh, come together as this uh, Dominic Aquila and then along with Paul Harrell to review the top 10 list that the readers of the Aquila Report chose just by clicking on articles and reading them. And so we uh, come together and this is for the uh, Monday, June 6th, which is also D-Day. And uh, the, uh, the newsletter will come out on uh, Tuesday, the 7th. And so hopefully many of you are listening to this podcast uh, before they come out. That way you get sort of advance notice is what the top 10 articles will be. But if you're listening to it afterwards, it gives you an opportunity to reflect. Maybe you've already read them or you plan to. Uh, so it's just our opportunity to encourage uh, readers uh, in the what has been on the Aquila Report in this last week. And so, uh, Paul, we uh, think we have a good list here. It's a great yes, variety um, that uh, we have that the Aquila uh, Report readers have chosen. Yeah, it is. And you mentioned D-Day. I was perusing. I hope everybody's okay with this. I hope I'm not hurting my, my Christian witness. I was per- perusing Donald Trump Jr.'s Instagram, and uh, he had a, a meme posted of, um, of a leftist on Twitter saying, can we just take all of the white cis males and put them on a barge and float them into the ocean? And the, and the response from uh, the Young America Foundation was, we did that. It's called D-Day, and we saved the world. Yeah, that's good. Uh, <laughs> very, very good response uh, on, uh, on that. Well, look, why don't we do this, uh, Paul? Why don't you read uh, the top 10 from 10 to 6, and I'll read from 5 to 1, and then we'll get started in our conversation. All right. Number 10, uh, we have a piece by David Robertson. Unless the Church of Scotland returns to the gospel, it will die. That's strong words. And then we have uh, number uh, 9 by Matthew Barrett, an attribute of God simply too serious to ignore. Coming in at number eight, Joe McKeever, 16 lies Satan feeds us about worship. Then number seven, we have Larry Ball writing Jesus's response to massacres. Why? And coming in at number six by Brad Isbell, a presbyter's progression. And I will just say a slight note here. I didn't notice that Brad, I just started reading this piece. It didn't pick up that Brad wrote it. And I got to paragraph two of the uh, dialogue. And I said to myself, wait a second, who wrote this? Brad Isbell? And I scrolled up and sure enough, there his name was. Donald. So you so you picked out his, uh, his style. Tale. Yes. <laughs> I, right. he's, he, his perspective is very unique. That is, it is. Uh, well, he's a Jonesboro boy like you. So that's good. Okay, then uh, number five, the uh, problem is the leaders, why the church is in shambles by Grayson Gilbert. And then number four is welcome to Pride Month, Christian, uh, by Carl Truman. Uh, Number three, a reflection on the Presbyterian Church in America's coordinators and president's statement on heinous killings on the occasion of its second anniversary. And that's by Tom Harvey. And then number uh, one is desiring the true Catholicity of the church while maintaining significant distinctions. And so that's where we start with uh, that number one um, article. Uh, This desiring the true Catholicity of the church. 
this article is written by a group of pastors from the new denomination called Christ, Christ Reformed Presbyterian Church. And uh, there was an article out a number of weeks ago that uh, was a letter of covenant and testimony from the uh, this new denomination, Christ Reformed Presbyterian Church. So it's a small and new denomination. And they just want uh, readers, and they address it actually to the Aquila Report uh, readers, uh, just to know uh, what their desires and hopes uh, for the future. Uh, they do mention a little bit about the denomination they uh, left, but their focus is forward-looking, and um, and it, you know to say that while we're they uh, one point says that we maybe call one of those small micro denominations that our intent is not to be defined by that, but to uh, grow and uh, develop. So um, they uh, focus on what their constitution says about how they're to work with the, what is sometimes called the ordinary means of grace in uh, ministry. And so that's where we're going. And so at one point they say, we love Christ, we love Christ's church, and we do not believe that Christ is best served when uh, the church is employing her gifts and expending her energy in, at time and energy in an inward facing war as uh, sad as the multiplication of denominations may be we believe that separating from brothers holding fundamental different convictions is a more honest more peaceful approach to the division which must exist among us over issues of truth that is than than to attempt to remain in common fellowship marked by constant strife so they are desiring to go forward and look forward to that. And so a lot of readers were interested in this and therefore it was uh, article number one. Yeah, I like this part. Um, they write, for those who have been quick to criticize us, we are not overly concerned about the opinions of those who lack the information or jurisdiction to render any just judgment. Quote, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame, Proverbs 18, 13. And they go on, with Paul, we are content to answer before the throne of Christ. Quote, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I have not thereby, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. First Corinthians four, three through five. So, you know, this is kind of a, a follow up. You know, they, they do address this to the readers of the Aquila reports. It says they never intended for, you know, uh, this apparent dispute between Vanguard Presbytery uh, and this, their new denomination to, to kind of uh, be public. Uh, but here is their a letter kind of explaining some things. Um, and they, they seem to assert here that, you know, they have, uh, you know, they have evidence that vindicates them. And, uh, I, you know, I don't necessarily think they're going to re release that uh, publicly un unless I think they're, if you read this, it's, maybe there's uh, uh, some possibility of that happening. Right. Well, we'll, uh, you know, that's uh, hopefully something that their their desires will be manifest in. And it uh, won't be any look, backward look and clashes, but going forward on the uh, case of both uh, denominations. Okay, well, number two is a reflection by Tom Harvey, as he says, on the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCAs, uh, the coordinators and the presidents of um, 
the denomination, uh, their committees and agencies um, on the base on the occasion of some uh, what they, he calls heinous killings on the occasion of its second anniversary. So two years ago on June 4th, they, the uh, presidents and coordinators passed uh, approved a letter and sent it out to the PCA uh, to express their dismay and concerns about the Ahmad Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd issues and things that were tied to that. And so after two years or a two year reflection, Tom Harvey, who's a, a member of the Woodruff Road uh, Presbyterian Church PCA in um, Simpsonville, uh, South Carolina, it's in the Greenville area. So he just, you know, reflects uh, on what they what these um, officers said, and a lot of folks, obviously, it's article number two, and he evaluates it and makes uh, you know comments about it. So basically, those, uh, he says, who are involved may consider that Christ commissioned the church to make disciples of all nations, not to make nations fit an ideal social vision that has never been realized in this life, that she should not give aid to those whose actions stir up strife rather than peace, and to have the church uh, on a dangerous moral and spiritual path that ends not with helping to achieve a more just society, but with consigning ourselves to insignificant and eventual oblivion. And so uh, Tom Harvey, who has written a number of articles who, because of the way he writes and the topics he chooses, are, has been uh, here in the top 10 before. And this is a lengthy piece. Uh, but one I think that is helpful as he interacts with uh, that letter after two years now that, you know, things are not as contentious and so that, um, you know, can reflect on what the meaning of this is. So I think you'll find it a very helpful uh, letter as uh, you read through it. Uh, so, uh, Paul, did you have time to read through that lengthy letter? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's interesting, um, uh, Tom kind of takes them to task in hindsight, uh, talking about what's problematic. You know, he addresses the fact that they used the word we many times. Uh, they later used we 27 times in describing how they intend to respond to current racial tensions. They may be fair. Uh, they may be fairly asked if you are not writing for the denomination as a whole, but feel your offices compel you to speak. Is it a fair inference that you are speaking then only for your own agencies and committees, question mark? Or do you mean that the solemn nature of your offices has impressed upon all of you your duty to speak as united individuals, but not in your official capacities as such? I mean, here's the deal. You know, now there's there's other things. There's other details that have emerged, you know, since all of these tragedies that are uh, that are mentioned here that uh, I, I would say in some cases make uh, make things maybe more nuanced than they were at the time when everybody's emotions were so were so high. But really beside that point, uh, what he what Tom Harvey really does here that I, I find the most beneficial is he talks about the scripture that they use to justify uh, their concerns and uh, seems to point out uh, very, very well that they have taken scripture out of context. The statement's use of scripture raises real concerns, he writes. In the second paragraph under the section entitled Scripture, we read the following. In spite of exhortation to do 
good, seek justice, correct oppression. Isaiah 117, Israel oppressed the poor and thrust aside outsiders, leading to judgment and exile. Malachi 3.5, such racism and ethnocentrism were not merely the sinful acts of individuals. These sinful traits had become so embedded in the laws and customs of the society that the prophet Isaiah pronounced a woe on iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. And the psalmist spoke pointedly of wicked rulers who fame injustice by statute. Isaiah 10, 1, Psalm 94, 20. The Bible frames racism, they said two years ago, as individual and systemic sin and calls God's people to stand against both. Tom Hervey uh, says, left to itself, the first sentence's meaning is approximately correct, except that it omits that there were other causes of Israel's exile, notably idolatry, 2 Kings 21, 11 through 15, and uses Malachi 3, 5 awkwardly. It fails to note that Malachi was written after the return from the exile that earlier prophets like Isaiah had threatened. Implies 3, 5 either mentions this previous exile or threatens another, where it actually speaks generically of judgment and fails to note that 3, 1 through 5 describes the future coming of John the Baptist and the Messiah 400 years later. The next three sentences represent the central idea that controls the author's exposition of the passages cited, namely that they show that the Bible frames racism as individual and systemic sin. Anyway, he goes on and on and on and uh, you know, does a fine job of, of really kind of uh, – I've used this several times in the last couple of podcasts. Uh, just kind of – but I'll just use the – instead of – I'll just use – this is virtue signaling. This is the way it comes across to me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, I think so if you look at right. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the, the frame of frame of uh, mind, uh, but I definitely the people that did this uh, initially were thought they were doing something uh, 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 noble and good. And and you can understand why they but in hindsight and, and not, not a, in a very short time later, you looking back. It's good to look back, you know, to to say, OK, well, how does this hold up through the lens of history now that we now that we're two years past? Right, and it's a it's a good reflection that way. You know, not a an immediate response. So it's some uh, is you know a thoughtful reflection, uh, looking at the passages of scripture that refer to and based on what was there. So it was. Um, I think it's very uh, very helpful. Some that we all could be challenged on in terms of taking time to reflect before we uh, before we respond to things. So lengthy, but uh, very helpful article very challenging uh number three is uh, one of two that we have on top 10 with carl truman this one he wrote for uh world uh magazine and it's an editorial uh where entitled welcome to pride month comma christian uh, social justice demands our opposition to its celebration and symbols uh to understanding social justice in a biblical sense and there's uh, pictures that uh the, for somehow, and I sort of I've missed the memo when it happened that the month that June has been declared Pride Month. Uh, was unaware of that, which really is a way of saying that the uh, word Pride now has been sort of co-opted by the uh, LGBTQ community. So if anyone wants to understand, uh, Carl Truman says, what is happening to the public square in America? Indeed, if anyone wants to know how America, or at least her ruling class, wishes to understand itself, they needn't look no further than Pride Month. If the arrival of the pilgrims, the founding of the nation, 
and even the contribution of Martin Luther King Jr. received no more than 24 hours on the national calendar, the LGBTQ plus alliance has an entire month to party in the streets. And this uh, street party is enabled by the countless commercial ventures that post rainbow flags in their windows and on their websites. Uh, we should say not only uh, commercial ventures, but also a good number of uh, churches have also uh, done the same thing. And so the month of June has been uh, sort of set apart for that purpose. And I think even the president has issued a, a, an executive uh, decree on that, that matter. So the, the thing that uh, Carl Truman raises in this here is uh, this makes uh, Pride Month something with which no Christian should have any sympathy whatsoever. It marks the beginning of summer with the dramatic assertion of human autonomy and the sovereignty of the individual desire. The rebels take over time and with their flags and their parades, they assert ownership over space, public, commercial, virtual, and even via yard signs and symbols on social media posts, personal and private. It is not about uh, what the state allows consenting adults to do in the privacy of their bedrooms. Far from it. Rather, June witnesses as comprehensive an attempt to a cultural revolution as one has ever as ever likely to see. There's more to it than that on there. So he says, but there's a silver lining here. Uh, Pride Month does, does offer those Christians who are passionate about social justice to, uh, a chance to reassure those of us who fear their commitments to such is always tailored to the appeal to the broader taste of the day. For if the Confederate flags and statues are deemed social justice issues by many, a point with which I am sympathetic, uh, how much more uh, is the rainbow flag? Uh, the use of rainbow symbol should be particularly egregious to Christians. It is primary instrument by which the LGBTQ uh, movement asserts its ownership of the culture and is the means of telling those of us who dare to dissent that we should have no place in the public square anymore. It tears at God's creation order and design for family relationships and social stability. And it is also a blasphemous desecration of a sacred symbol, taking that which was intended as a sign of God's love and faithfulness and our dependence upon him and turning it into an aggressive uh, symbol of human autonomy and sexual decadence. So basically, Truman is saying that uh, in reality, if you're really wanting to stand up for that which you believe to be true in concept, context of scripture, is uh, should you should stand up and oppose Pride Month and its flag as public and strident in a way as many uh, have opposed racism and its symbols. Uh, that's probably a tall order and probably will not happen, but uh, he is saying that the that the this is also almost like a declaration of war uh, more self-consciously already and very publicly uh, to uh, uh, for culture as well as for the church. So I think uh, Carl Truman just calling us to be aware that how much we have to face in the life of the church and then in this world itself. Yeah. So, Paul, uh, it's um, something that's new. In fact, I saw since you're in uh, Arkansas, that the first Baptist church of Little Rock had a um, uh, the the rainbow element in uh, mm. laid out in a theme uh, on their front 
railing of their front in front of their front door, uh, you know, sending the signal that they are uh, an inclusive church. Mm, yeah, that is. Uh, I was hoping you were going to say, you know, they were going over Genesis chapter five and six and uh, and no, the flood. all the way to nine. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, they, they weren't. Uh, they weren't doing that, huh? Yeah. And, that, and Carl Truman hits on that a little bit of the symbol. Uh, of the rainbow, how it is being used. And I've commented on this before that it, it very much is, you know, considering the rainbow is something that has to do with God's judgment. And we're, we're, we're saying, you know, it's a, it's a reprieve. It's a reminder of him. Not He's never going to judge the earth by water. He's not going to flood the earth again. Uh, and so for these, these people, uh, in, in the, uh, the, the LGBT, uh, enclaves, if you will, you know, to use this uh, this symbol is is very arrogant and prideful. Um, it is it is it is appropriate that they are calling this month Pride Month. We all need to reflect on the fact that Christians do not aspire to be prideful. Uh, pride is a sin, and so we, we it's it's just you know it all really fits into they're all be, they're being intellectually they're being. Uh, they're being consistent here in, in what their their hearts are, what their motivations are. It's it's not just the homosexuality that's obviously a sin, but there's a lot of other heart problems that are going along with this, and uh, it 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 really is um, it, it is really a shame. Carl Truman here in this article does a great job of uh, of pointing all of that out, and he is kind of you can tell he's doing this tongue in cheek, saying you know hey now's the time for. For all of you guys out there who are on the maybe on the cultural progressive side, uh, you know, this would be a time to do it. Uh, and of course, he's going to keep waiting. He says, I look forward to reading all reading them all, meaning the posts about you know, social justice and that sort of thing. And he's not going to uh, not going to get a chance to do that because it's not going to happen. Uh, and that's, I think, why this is such a great article. You know, I'm kind of conflicted, Dominic, because of the corporations and this is the. I don't know. This happens every year now, and the corporations are so on board, and 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 it's just everywhere uh, treating this as the civil rights issue of our time. And you know, at some point, I I'm I don't even know how to do it. I have these thoughts of I'm tired of giving these corporations my money, and they, who hate me. They hate they hate me and my way of life. They're promoting things that are uh, not godly uh, in any way, shape, or form. Not they don't have you know. We have this Dallas story of. Um, what they did at a, a drag show for kids and they brought kids in to watch a drag show. I mean, this is, this is sexualization of children. This is abuse. I mean, th- these people should be arrested if there aren't laws against this, which I think there are, they're just not being enforced. There should be laws against this. And then there are some other silver linings. We have a piece over at just the news and I'll stop uh, of the Tampa Bay devil rays uh, in Florida, the baseball team there, you know, it's LGBT pride month uh, at the baseball games. Several Tampa Bay Rays have declined to wear the LGBTQ logos, citing religious reasons. And so um, get ready for that. You know, this story goes on to just basically say that the the manager's okay with that, wants to respect people who are comfortable with it, wants to respect those who aren't comfortable with it. But I have have a feeling that uh, the the, the media at large is is not going to just let that resolve. That's 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 uh, that's correct. I think it's um, <clears throat> something that we've faced now. Uh, the, there is uh, an article that's running on the Accord Report uh, 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 today uh, that really reflects back in the way the culture was um, back in the Roman Empire, and it basically entitles something like how 
uh, the Christians living faithfully conquered and changed pagan Rome. Uh, so you may, if you have time after the listening to the uh, podcast, you can just run over to the Aquila Report, theaquilareport.com and look at that um, because they they were in really more dire situations than we were. At least we had, as we've talked about in other podcasts, the uh, Christian consensus. And then it, as it faltered, the memory of the Christian consensus. And uh, so it's a, so we're at least you know, fighting against that memory and, and desiring it to be a part of the overall civic um, culture that we're we are part of. But you know, the Christians in the early churches in Rome between the first three four hundred years, uh, they they were born into and lived in a totally pagan secular secular culture far from anything that was even remotely Christian. And yet, as they lived out the salty imperatives of the gospel, they began to have a civic uh, effect, not only with the gospel, as people were called to Christ redemptively, but just in terms of their lifestyle had quite a bit of change. So it challenges us as Christians uh, to live faithfully in the midst of the decadence that we see in culture. But at least that's part of what we'll we'll, uh, look at that. And I suspect that article will probably be in the top 10 next week, and we'll be able to deal with that more okay well number four is the uh, problem is the leaders why the church is in shambles by grayson gilbert uh so he the little pull quote is purported ministers of the christian faith don't actually hold to the christian faith but an eclectic grab bag of ideological philosophical and theological ideas that are fundamentally at odds with one another so the idea here is that the problem with in the is the leaders in terms of as shepherds in the church or and uh, or leaders if they're maybe just instructors not not just instructors but instructors in uh, colleges and seminaries and so forth what are they doing to help the uh, you know the uh, Christians know something uh, Gilbert uh, starts out by referring to a recent worldview survey that was con- released by from George Barna slash Arizona's Cultural Research Center, detailing what many have been saying for years. There's a fundamental issue in the church and it stems from the pulpits. The result of this report are particularly damning as they indicate only 41% of lead pastors, 28% of associate pastors, 13% of teaching pastors, 12% of youth pastors, and 4% of executive pastors pastors actually hold to a comprehensive worldview. Uh, take on the whole, uh, take it on the whole, just under two-third of the pastors embrace a form of syncretism. Now, that means something that you're working along with that's a mixture of uh, some biblical thinking and whatever the culture is holding uh, philosophically, which is the blending of various belief systems together as one. In other words, Purported ministers of Christian faith uh, don't actually hold to the Christian faith, but an eclectic grab bag of ideological, philosophical, and theological ideas that are fundamentally at odds with one another. And the impact on this has uh, come come upon the congregants uh, cannot be overstated. So the point is, what what are the leaders uh, dishing out? What are they teaching? and so 
he comes down to this conclusion that Occam's razor uh, would lead us to believe that the these shepherds are not shepherding. And yet, if these men are not shepherding, the question must be asked, asked precisely, what is it that they do? And he goes on to explain uh, how they're creating problems for the life of the church because they're not instructing the people and they haven't in themselves even come up with a clear statement of what their comprehensive worldview is from which then they are uh, speak to from the scriptures to the congregation to give leadership and so he puts the onus on them uh on the leaders and so that's the reason for the title the problem is the leaders and why the church is in shambles. Uh, so the uh, uh, Gilbert um, is, you know, calling the church, especially its leaders, uh, to be more um, focused on what uh, is necessary, give guidance in the things that are truth. So not only the biblical truth, but also the uh, moral construct uh, for civic engagement, living in the world. Uh, since we leave the, the church and then we have to live in the world, uh, so we go to work and go to school and live in our, co our communities, uh, how are we to do so? So these, he says, are perilous days, good Christian, and the days to come may be even more perilous than today. But hope in God, join the throng of God's people and wage war against the powers and principalities of darkness looming over the church. And the powers of hell cannot prevail against Christ's bride. Time and time again, this keen and hopeful word, capital W, has proven true. Be strong, courageous, and act like men. It's an allusion to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, uh, 16, 13. And gird on your loins by going about those ordinary works which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Below, Christ is with us even to the end of the age. So he ends on a very hopeful note. So even if the uh, the shepherds aren't doing right. The great shepherd of the sheep, he says, is standing with us and guiding us. But, uh, you know, this is this article is, you know, as uh, number four is quite, a, uh, I guess, an indictment of. Yes. Uh, or a statement of, you know, where the leadership is uh, for the life of the church and praying that uh, something will happen. And so this is being written, not only say, let's point it out, but let's also pray that there will be a shift and a change that will take place. Yeah, you know, I this article really spoke to me because I've been having very similar thoughts uh, on the long drive uh, for Memorial Weekend. I kept and I ended up writing my thoughts down on this just just briefly. And it was about it was about the shepherds and it was uh, just about all the problems that we have uh, in our country today and how um, apparently ineffective the church uh, has been at, at influencing our culture in a positive way. And I don't necessarily mean the, the big ones, you know, the SBC list on the sexual abuse allegations that came out last week. Or I'm not even talking about the obvious ones. I'm just talking about the fact that how many people, especially in the South, like where I live, how many of your, your local state legislators are filled with people who go to church every Sunday or uh, you know, uh, claim to be Christians. And yet, in my experience watching uh, many of these people, they're not governing like there is an absolute truth out there that it, that that is Christ, that is God. 
And that's exactly what he's saying here, Grayson Gilbert. Purported ministers of the Christian faith don't actually hold to the Christian faith, but an eclectic grab bag of ideological, philosophical, and theological ideas that are fundamentally at odds with one another. They contradict one another. And that's and and so I just I'm going to add a little bit more to these thoughts in the in the article about uh, Jesus's response to massacres because it goes hand in hand with it. But um, it really is an indictment. You use that word, Dominic. That's exactly what it is. It's an indictment of people, uh, of, of shepherds who, who who get the opportunity, ideally, to speak to their flock uh, and to have relationships with them, but speak to them, preach the word uh, that goes out and and shapes their lives and changes their lives. And yet, uh, I mean, I have seen it time and time again where people at the local level, they, they, they can, it's almost like they can be talked out of their convictions very easily. It's almost like they're looking for an excuse to get talked into a reason why not to do the right thing. And it's very, very maddening, but I have seen it over and over and over and over again. And most of the time it has to do with, you know, uh, big business and, and corporate money and greed, honestly. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that is something that, uh, you know, stands out. So the shepherds, uh, the, the, Lord reserves quite a bit in the scriptures to challenge and call out those who uh, claim to be shepherds or friends called to be uh, shepherds. And, you know, the woes are uh, spoken against them. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jesus, and Matthew 23. Uh, so th there's a great deal of warning of whom much is given, much is required kind of approach. And uh, so we have to, as members of the church, you know, stand on what is important. Now, in regard to that, and article number five, again, another one by Carl Truman, this one in First Things, is God a therapist? Uh, in this in number of podcasts we've been using, at least I have, um, the distinction between uh, theological and therapy, and uh, that uh, arguing as others have, and now Carl Truman is, uh, that that most of the teaching or a good little bit of it of teaching and preaching uh, in the uh, broad evangelical communion uh, and in the church at large is therapeutic. That is, you find a problem and you set out to prove it. And so it's almost as if the congregation is there listening or sitting on their counselors, uh, lying down on their counselor's couch, and he is giving them, um, you know, the soothing words of comfort uh, and therapy with the hope that it will uh, soothe their troubled heart and minds and so forth. Uh, and so the question now is, is the God just a great therapist in the sky? And uh, the argument is against that, if, that if we're not really clear and precise about our theology, uh, then we don't, we can't get to therapy. So if you get to ther theology, you will get therapy. If you start with therapy, you never get to theology and, and you become wistful. So in this article by Carl Truman, Is God a Therapist? He begins referring to Archbishop Chaput, who is now retired uh, from being an archbishop, uh, recently wrote that holiness above and beyond all things should mark the church and her members. It was an encouraging, uh, encouraging reminder that in an age when church leadership is often characterized by bureaucratic skills rather than piety, the Lord has yet a few uh, who have not bowed their knee uh, to the various bales of efficiency, wokeism, and wonkery. 
And though the archbishop did not make this point explicit, it is clear that holiness is a corollary of a high and orthodox doctrine of God. Uh, if that's the case and it's not practiced, then, then it's affected in the life of the church. So he then asks the question, uh, how will we be able to prepare for what is to come? We've already seen a couple of articles that have dealt with uh, the uh, the Pride Month and other things that the culture has co-opted and now sort of make pressing people into its mold. Uh, so how should we prepare to stand in face of what is to come? In other words, how will we stand against any threats or uh, uh, people who don't believe the truth and they are, but are pressing us into their mold? He says, I agree with Archbishop Chaput that holiness and devotion must mark the church's witness. After all, if we do not take the faith seriously, how can we expect others to do the same? Furthermore, Holiness is not simply or even primarily an apologetic strategy. Uh, it is in part a response to the doctrine of God. So there's your theology. Not only when we grasp this, can we truly place our lives in perspective and anchor our faith so as to resist the cultural moment. If our imaginations are not fired by the greatness of the eternal communion with our glorious God, that will be consummated at the end of time, then the problem of this present age will loom large and always threaten to overwhelm us. So I think we are finding that's the um, need uh, for us is to have a real sense of the person of God. And uh, when we get to, I think it's the ninth article, we're gonna talk about something of the attributes of God and the nature of God is as, as simple that is all the attributes are really part of one and uh, focusing on that and, and meditating on it so that we are able to survive and not see God as just the great uh, therapist in the sky that's his job and his job description says he's to soothe our uh, ruffled brows and our troubled uh, uh, chests. So uh, very good article, very good reminder of what is it really essential for ministry. So there seems to be a theme that's developed in these articles here that have been chosen so far, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this part about the, um, the the prediction here that within the five, five years, we're going to witness, he writes, significant disruption across all major representatives of the Christian faith. And he says that the divide line is going to be about who's going to accommodate the world's terms of good citizens citizenship i really like this concept because that's exactly what we're the what it means to be a good citizen uh, we have different definitions and the world's definition is increasingly things that are antithetical to the christian world view we're seeing that right now because here we are in the month of june uh, and we just read the other Carl Truman article about Pride Month. So uh, that's what stands out to me is to, to recognize that your idea, Christian, of what a good citizen is, is different than what the corporate media, uh, their idea of a good citizen is. And that's going to continue to change. And the gap is going to continue to get wider and wider and wider. And there will be no way to uh, somehow, somehow claim Christ and blend in with this increasingly uh, you know, debauched situation uh, that our country is facing. But it also is a call to, to pray and ask God for uh, 
you know, repentance and to pray for uh, the people who are in the snare of the devil um, as, as a culture. And, you know, and I'm also encouraged. I also was telling somebody of the day, I mean, if you if you really look at this stuff that they're forcing on us, a, a lot of it still is the vast minority of people that they're being portrayed as the majority. But there are still uh, millions of us in America that uh, that reject this outright uh, from all kinds of denominational walks. And, uh, you know, that's an encouraging thought. But we are very much under the uh, uh, really oppression of propaganda that I don't think many people want to even believe is there, but it is there. And it is putting out this idea that this Pride Month and these other things are are wildly accepted and we all love it and think it's great. And and I think the vast majority of of us reject it. Absolutely. I love the way this article concludes. Uh, Christians need to put uh, our own lives in the perspective uh, in perspective before this God, uh, the greater our understanding of God's transcendent mystery, uh, the greater will be our understanding of his eminent grace as shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. A trivial God, read that as the therapeutic type of God, is a God of trivial actions. The triune God of glory is a God of glorious Trinitarian grace. Only as we bow in awe before such a God, Will our present suffering seem but light and momentary? Only then will holiness be the obvious mark of the church. A good uh, reminder for us and uh, this in this in this regard. Well, the problem I think maybe number six comes in with this is a take. Uh, it's called a presbyter's progression. The presbyter being a minister or ruling elder, just someone who rules in the life of the church. Um, and so the word presbyter sometimes comes from the Greek word elder. Uh, and this is, like you said, written by Brad Isbell. And it's an offshoot or takeoff on Pilgrim's Progress. And if you know the uh, the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, it's a John Bunyan's uh, analogy of the Christian life, starting from when Christian, before he became a believer, uh, walks through life and he describes all the ways in which he is living through Vanity Fair and other places like that until he comes to the cross. And then once his uh, sins are removed and he sees his sins roll down Calvary's mountain right into the grave and then it's gone. Now he in, then is shown the pathway to Celestial City and off in the distance he can see Celestial City and there's a path, the, the narrow path that leads to life. And he starts on that uh, path. And so there we have now the doctrine of sanctification that comes in. And But there are times when Christian goes off the path and gets stuck in the slaw of despond or a giant castle and things like that and other um, things that uh, break up the flow. But he always comes back to the path. Anyway, taking that as the model he uses uh, this with reference to the presbyter to the elders. So it seems like we're sticking with the theme of uh, leadership uh, here, uh, where he says an ex- excerpt from the PCA presbyters progression. So he's specifically referring to the PCA uh, from the denomination that was to that which is to come delivered under the similitude of a dream. Uh, but the, this is just quoting right out of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, wherein is discovered the manner of his setting out his dangerous journey and surprising outcome of his travels. 
and then it's uh, supposedly chapter the fifth uh, presbyter on this slippery slope and he says now i saw in my dream that when confessionalist uh came back presbyter and moderate uh went talking over the steepest track and um and thus they began their discourse so presbyter says so it's a dialogue now uh says uh, come neighbor moderate uh how do you do I am glad that you are with me on this treacherous, beautifully broken, but orthodox way. Uh, you seem an authentic and plain man, and I'm happy for your company. What think you of this way? Moderate response. Well, good, Presbyter. The views are certainly beautiful, but I fear this slope, which falls away so sharply to our left as the trail grows more narrow and steep. Uh, the footing is not at all to my liking. What with these loose stones and many sizes and types. And the slope, on, you, you said it, the slope. Yep, there's the slope, it's yeah. right. Uh, and uh, so Presbyter says, now come, good moderate, see you not these excellent shoes I wear of hardy evangelical stock, these shoes that were made by the most excellent cobblers of the city of cultural, of, of city cultural for mission and progress. Uh, no such shoes are to be had in the con in the uh, country. And the moderate says, well, Presbyter, the shoes are most beautiful. The design is lovely to behold in such a shine they have. Though I venture to say that the dust of this way does but uh, begin to dull them. But the great thing about shoes is how they stand where and how they protect one's feet, is it not? And how on so rocky and treacherous a track as this, they allow a man to keep his feet. Uh, it may be that a simple uh, country cobbler knows the better knows the better how to fashion shoes for the wilds that we now traverse. So it goes on like this to talk about that slippery slope that uh, some people just don't really want to talk about. So this is a clever way of exposing or talking about uh, the uh experience that we have in real real life and issues that can become slippery slopes so brad uh, isbell's be commended for <laughs> this dream and the similitude uh yes. and the, the uh and with thanks to um the copying of john bunyan's great uh writing no it's great and in my mind i read it where the presbyter speaks more in an english british accent and the moderate is just speaks just down to earth country-fied uh, tones so um i i thought i thought it was <laughs> i thought it was really good yeah. um this this part where it uh, talks about uh, a good mar moderate do you remember this path leads to the broad plane of influence and and that that's where they're trying to go they're they're walking uh, up the slippery slope or up the slope of, of rocks and they're going to get to the plane of influence. But the moderate says that he's consulted this historical map or the map historical uh, from my kit bag. And I'm reminded that nearly all who have traveled this way before have come to a bad end. This ravine or canyon to our left is very deep and the map does warn of many bones at the bottom thereof. And it says that those not killed on the slope have often wandered off mad into the wilderness hereby, not being able to climb back up this dreadful slope after having slipped, exclamation point. Anyway, 
uh, hats off to, to Brad Isbell here. This is really highbrow uh, humor satire. I mean, that's what this is. And and it's uh, it's really good. And um, oh, we made it. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. And this is the third podcast in a row. Uh, let's see. Forty seven fifty five. So around forty five minutes again into the program, Dominic, we mentioned the uh, the dreaded slippery slope. Yeah, so we might have to have a horn or or some other bell whistle. <laughs> sound that, effect, yeah. The sound effect to capture that as it, and it comes naturally. You know, we we don't script it, so that's <laughs> that is good. Okay, well, number seven. Uh, this is by Larry Ball. It's an opinion piece on the massacres that have taken place. Jesus's response to massacres: Why? Uh, mental health experts cannot save us. Education cannot save us. Politicians cannot save us. Sadly, even the modern church today cannot save us. So the question is, why are these um, uh, these things uh, really taking place? Um, and he starts out in the very first paragraph, and uh, uh, Larry does, with regard to uh, his opinions that everyone's giving different opinions about what can happen uh, more gun control, more mental health expenditures, better security, improved training for the police, better police equipment for dealing with all these calamitous, horrendous uh, events. I have not heard much about more about uh, from more education. Uh, I think the modern generation has given up the education as a cure for all evils uh, in the world, except maybe the fighting against what they call racism. So he says uh, he does give a shout out to Greg Gutfeld, who's on uh, Fox News and one of the personalities, I think, on the, the, the five, um, in which he asked the question as to why these massacres were such common occurrence today when they weren't 50 to 70 years ago. What has changed in America? Well, he at, was at least getting close to the right question. Uh, it was a good question, but unlike most commentators, heard that really does not have a clue as to the right answer. Uh, and then he, uh, Larry moves and talks about what Jesus refers to uh, in Luke chapter 13, verses one through five. He asked about the tragedy in Galilee, which occurred without any apparent reason. It just uh, seemed senseless. There was nothing evil done by the victims in Galilee that could be called a carnage, that could call for such carnage. It appears that the people were just worshiping God and suddenly blood, their blood was mixed with their sacrifices. A bloodbath of all places in the house of worship. Uh, he went on to speak about, uh, about not only the tragedy, but also about another dreadful event that killed 18 people in the Tower of Siloam, uh, which we have in the Old Testament. So the uh, the question that he is uh, that Larry's raising here is that um, that there's the for, we forget about God and when the when God is forgotten we fall into um, you know into sin. In other words, the the restraints of God's protective grace or common grace are removed. So he argues America once was a part of Christendom, even though not everyone was Christian. The values of Christian faith permeated not only our church, but also civil society as well. Our culture had a Christian base. Uh, our 18-year-old boys used to go off to war to fight for their country, but now some of them take up arms and murder our own people, especially our own children, 
who are the most vulnerable at all. So Jesus' answers can only be understood in terms of religion. In the secular world, religious answers are not relevant because religion is not relevant. But as Christians, we know that the religion, uh, religious condition of the people is the most relevant issue of all. Uh, we know why America has changed in the last 50 to 70 years. America has cast off the Christian faith as a nation, referring to its in, in its common grace sense, and we are suffering the consequences of that rejection. Rampant divorce, broken homes, abortion, pornography, homosexuality, adultery, and mass shootings are the result of a change in religion. Unless we repent and turn back to the child and God as a nation, things will only get worse. So that that's the question is uh, with the and the title, uh, Jesus respond to massacres, why? And uh, this that paragraph I just read uh, gives some uh, point on that. And so uh, who to blame? I guess they're seeing some articles here, Paul, that uh, we're blaming leaders, blaming the church for not taking all this seriously and preaching the full orbed gospel. So who then is to blame? He says, I blame the church. The church has ceased to be the salt of the earth. Liberalism captured the church in America in the early 20th century. Uh, rapturism, um, referring to the rapture, captured the church in America in the mid 20th century, and radical two king separation has captured the church in America in the early 21st century. And we have now uh, been uh, told that the two kingdoms refer only to the battle between God and Satan and so forth. So uh, the battle line really has never changed. It's always between light and dark and between uh, the uh, seed of woman, seed of Satan, but uh, Larry's just reminding us that the placement of righteousness of people who are walking with the Lord and where the truth is preached uh, does have a spillover effect in the civic arena, and we at least need to be conscious of that. I think it's a, a worthy, healthy reminder. I just, yeah, and I think we have to own it. I think we need to just own it, uh, you know, if we're going to pass blame. Uh, um, we we just need to be comfortable with saying, hey, look, you know, the things things we haven't done as much as we could do, um, and uh, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna blame the church for the reason things are so out of control, and we certainly know a lot of this is also uh, you could even you could look at this through a Romans one lens, and that we're being given over. I mean, if you push God away and you say and you reject Him over and over again, well, th these are the things that happen. Um, and backing up a paragraph that you that I don't think you, you read right before America was once part of Christendom, uh, the reason for such providential injections of heart rendering calamities into society is very often a result of the awful religious condition of that society. In other words, he writes, our culture is rotted and senseless tragedies can be viewed as a warning sign. Israel had rejected the savior and they would face a judgment unless they repented. Such events as the Galilean catastrophe and the uh, Siloam disaster cannot be tied to the condition of the victims in particular, but to the condition of religion in the nation as a whole. Uh, really good stuff here from uh, Larry Ball. And I will add this uh, because the very next paragraph you read talked about how we used to send our 18 year old boys off to war. War is a horrible thing, but it can, can be necessary. Uh, and they used to go off to war. And, and let's just go ahead and say it. Most of them were Christians. I mean, this is D-Day. So let's talk about that. I mean, let's talk about how we were once part of Christendom. So I got to thinking, uh, and, and 
military excluded, but I just want to talk about real quick, just ask these questions about about local police forces. How how many uh, police officers do you know that you went to church with in all of the places that you've you've been to church? So I started thinking I've asked a few people this. So this is just a hypothesis at this point. So please take it with a grain of salt. But I was like. How many, you know, police officers now, police forces now in local communities are essentially the, the town or the city military. I mean, they've certainly been militarized. They have a lot of military equipment. You just don't see it on a day to day basis. How many of them are going to church? How many of them are Christians? Because I just think of this Uvalde event. I mean, that's what inspired this article. Senseless massacres you can't make heads or tails of. We now have these reports that the police officers kept parents from going in. They themselves weren't going in. And I just thought, just where did those men go to church? Who on that police force goes to church? And and yes, I am banking in this hypothesis. I'm banking on Christians, Christians uh, in positions of, of military or uh, police type authority being willing to lay down their lives as Christians for the innocent, you know, to stand on the side of justice. I'm banking on that. And I'm just wondering how many pastors out there are more concerned with the doctor or lawyer attending their church versus how many do you have on the police force that how much better would your society be or your 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 how much better would the lives of your flock be on a day to day week to week basis if we had more uh, Christians who who are in law enforcement? And, and look, again, I'm, this is just a hypothesis. So forgive me if I'm making generalizations that offend anybody. Please forgive me. But um, it, it that has just been weighing on me, Dominic, that I think that this is something that again, kind of shows the failure of the church. Yep, that's right. Um, and it's something that we need to consider. So, so you know, I started out by saying, I, you know, having reviewed the articles, I, I saw that thing, but I didn't really see it probably as, length, as strong as I should have uh, said from the beginning, uh, that the uh, church needing to be the church and uh, being the salt of the earth and uh, being led by... Um, leaders who are committed to the scripture to lay that strong foundation that bolsters the faith and uh, encourages the heart. So a good, good article by Larry Ball that's really helpful to draw attention to that. Um, maybe another area is uh, article number eight is 16 lies Satan feeds us about worship. Uh, here the idea is that uh, if worship is powerful, uh, that is if kneeling before almighty God in humility and right, raising Rising to praise him in gratitude and going forth to obey him in faithfulness is power in the world uh, to change lives and direct society. Then the enemy will be working to stop whatever he can. And so uh, this is an article by uh, Jim McKeever um, to just uh, Joe McKeever, rather, who uh, just says, what does Satan really do to sort of upset the apple cart? Because he wants to distort. Remember, Jesus said. John 8:44. not only was a murderer from the beginning, but also a liar. So he's constantly lying about anything that's tied into God. So just a couple of examples. He says, uh, one of the lies is worship is all about you. Uh, number two, um, you should be getting something out of worship. And if you don't, then you don't have to go. Uh, number three, worship is irrelevant. It really doesn't matter. Uh, number four, only exciting emotional worship really matters. Uh, five, born worship does not count. So these are the lies, and it goes on for 16 of things that Satan does to uh, just pervert 
cause us to buy into the lie itself if we're not careful. And uh, so it's important that we understand that worship is centered in God. It's about him. It's really an audience of one. And uh, that we, by as we said from um, Carl Truman's article, is we need to recapture the sense of the transcendence of God and the, the uh, his nature and the doctrine of God, if we're really going to understand worship and that how that then impacts our lives. So uh, I think it's good way to watch out for the wiles of the evil one as he takes something that God has ordained that we worship him and he distorts it by raising doubts and questions in our mind. Yeah. Uh, a few more worship matters only inside the church building. Number seven, you, you can worship on the Creek bank as well as you can in church. Now that is, uh, <laughs> that's to all of you fishermen out there who, <laughs> hey, hey, and you hunters too. And you, and you hunters too. Yeah. I'm definitely guilty of that. You can worship in a deer stand just as you can. Well, at church, not, 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 not true. Uh, let's see, number eight, the quality of your offering, your song, your testimony, sermon, et cetera, does not matter. All that matters is you're giving it to God. Uh, let's see here. Uh, uh, is this meditation? Number nine, meditation on anything counts as worship. Number 10, the architecture must be conducive to worship if it's to be done right. And check this article out. Uh, like Dominic said, it, it goes to 16. Yeah. Okay, number nine, an attribute of God, simply, and the word is a playoff on simply here in the article, too serious to ignore. Um, the uh, Matthew Barrett wrote this in um, Table Talk. Uh, go back in my seminary days, our family lived in Louisville, Kentucky. One of the advantages of living in Louisville was the occasional trip to home pie, homemade pie, and ice cream which had the most scrumptious uh, pies in town. Each year, people from all over the country, uh, even the world, traveled to Louisville to, for famous Kentucky Derby. Before the race, the festivities are marked not only by flamboyant hats and mint juleps, but also by the most uh, bakeries selling out of their derby pie. Um, so he says he enjoys the, uh, the derby. He says it kills me to admit this, but because of theologians is always looking for an insightful illustration wherever he can find one. But Dutch apple caramel pie is a poor illustration for what God is like. That's right. A really bad one. And yet it, uh, it's how many people think about God's attributes. In fact, it, what makes me nervous about writing on the different attributes of God as if we're slicing up the pie called God. The, what he is saying here now is that the perfections of God are not like a pie, as if we can slice up the pie into different uh, pieces, love being 10 percent, holiness 15 percent, um, uh, omnipotence 7 percent, and so on. Unfortunately, this is how many Christians talk about God today, as if uh, love, holiness, and omnipotence were all different parts of God. Uh, God being evenly divided among his various attributes. Some even go further, uh, believing that the some attributes are more uh, important than others. This happens most in divine love, which uh, some say is the most important attribute, uh, what might be called the biggest piece of the pie. But such an approach is deeply problematic. As it turns out, God, it, it turns God into a collection of attributes. Uh, it even sounds as if God were one thing 
and his attributes another something added to him attached to him who is uh, uh, to who he is not only is this approach uh, uh, this approach divided up the essence of god but it potentially risks setting one part of god against another so what is the answer to this it's basically that it would be far better that god is love or god is all power but tweaking the language of God, we are protecting the unity of God's essence. To do so is to guard the principle of the simplicity of God. Now, what does he mean? Simplicity may be a concept that is new to your theological vocabulary, but it is one that has been affirmed by the majority of our Christian forebears over the past 2,000 years of church, even some of the elder, uh, earliest church fathers, and for good reason, too. So what does it mean? It means that God is one. And that the that the way he chooses to reveal himself uh, then is uh, he'll reveal himself in different ways that we call the attributes, but in fact they are just parts of uh, different expressions of the one God, the simple God. So they, we talk usually about the in simplicity of God. To even think of the word simplicity to refer to God is not talking about he's simple. It's just that he's one. And that the, the the manifestations are voluminous, but God is not a the sum of the whole of all the parts. He is one, and all of these are distributions of His uh, essence uh, that uh, we're to worship. So um, the it's not an easy thing to uh, comprehend, but it's something that's helpful. And Matthew Barrett's article here really. Um, yeah really helps. The denial of simplicity is serious, so serious that one writer has said it is tantamount to atheism. That sounds extreme. Yet up until the 19th century, most would have agreed. Unfortunately, too many Christians today have adopted the monopolytheism or theistic personalism. Those are nice big words for us. Uh, that is the belief that there is one God, but he looks uh, a lot like the gods of the mythology, possessing human attributes only in greater measure. It almost comes into that thing that we talked about before. God is a, um, a therapist and we treat him in that way. So what we need to do is the attribute of simplicity is uh, simply too serious to ignore is the reason for the title of the article by Barrett. And so this really changes the whole way in which you look at God and how God presents himself uh, in the scripture uh, to us. And the simplicity is an important concept that we need to grasp and understand in the Christian life. I think he's quoting Augustine here because uh, it's it, this quote, God is identical with all that he is in and of himself. And uh, and he says, Augustine is not alone. He skips down. If you skip down to the next paragraph, he talks about uh, Thomas Aquinas. Since God does not have a body like us, he is not composed of extended parts as if he were composed of form and matter. It is not as if God were something different from his own nature, nor is it the case that his nature is one thing and his existence is another thing. We shouldn't suppose either that God is some type of substance, one that has accidents, traits that can be disposed of or cease to exist. God is in no way composite, rather. He is entirely simple. Right, exactly. So this is something that uh, will challenge you. And again, good one for a Bible study. Good discussion. 
to rehearse era. You could pick up a corollary, good um, doctrine of God. We were already admonished on that with uh, some articles before that if we have the proper understanding of God, it grasps us. It really makes a difference in how we perceive of our relationship with uh, the God who made us. So that's article number nine. And then number 10, we come with David Robertson, who we've uh, seen over the last uh, few podcasts, uh, who is uh, from Scotland, member of the Free Church of Scotland. And he's been writing about what has happened with the Church of Scotland, which was the uh, the, the where Presbyterian roots as we know it uh, sort of went forward uh, into the world as uh, Scots uh, and uh, Scots-Irish um, took the uh, truth of uh, the scripture, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and uh, through mission service spread it and exploration spread it all over the world. So no matter where you go with uh, Presbyterianism, there you have uh, the Westminster Confession, it's uh, doctrines uh, coming out of the Reformation, and um, and so forth. Well, here's the mother church or the mothership uh, that uh, has lost its way. And so the title, unless the Church of Scotland returns to the gospel, it will die. Uh, when the world lauds the church for adopting its values, it's a sign that the church is unnecessary, irrelevant, and judged by Christ. And so we find that... Um, the church here has adopted. This is a follow-up article that um, was done uh, by David Robertson before. After a long and protracted process, which began with the Scott Rennie case in 2009, so notice it goes back a while, and then even before that, there were earlier issues, that the Church of Scotland approved then the solemnization of same-sex marriages, in the church by a vote of 276 to 136 at the, the General Assembly in May uh, in Edinburgh. Ministers can now apply to be celebrants and no one will be compelled to take part. Uh, no one will be compelled to take part. And so the story is now that the church has bought, born, bought into complete same-sex uh, marriages, uh, same uh, uh, ordination, membership and ordination to office, elders and deacons and ministers. Uh, the, he says the gospel has been lost. It's gone. Uh, the, the parameters of the world have taken over. And given that, you will see the church will die. It won't go away right away because churches have a way of surviving uh, over a period of time. We see that here in churches in the U.S. But it, um, nonetheless, its membership will uh, you know, go extinct. Uh, it will drop off. Uh, in fact, it already has. Uh, the uh, Church of Scotland has lost um, hundreds of thousands of members and it's losing its way uh, now with the uh, gospel itself. So it's interesting that um, this keeps happening. We're thinking it's going to, um, you know, we can change the world by joining it. And in fact, uh, it, it, we give up our a heritage for a mess of pottage, sort of like Esau did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it says here a 34 percent, according to the, the trustees reported, uh, a 34 percent reduction was seen between 2011 and 2021, with no indication of this trend reversing from 2021 uh, 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 congregational data. Over the past 60 years, the Church of Scotland has lost a million 
of the 1.3 million members it once enjoyed. Now, of course, what does the media do? Now, the media is is praising the Church of Scotland right now for accepting homosexuality and gay marriage. And then they're trying to say, the BBC journalist, uh, BBC Scotland journalist, trying to say that the reason for the Church of Scotland's decline is because it hadn't adopted same-sex marriage soon enough. Uh, you know, because everybody's gay. And uh, the trouble with this de- description um, is that it is demonstrably false. Churches, which are more liberal, tend to decline more quickly. And the work of John Hayward on church growth modeling is fascinating. And he argues from the data that the Church of Scotland is likely to be extinct by the middle of this century. He also shows that every church that has supported progressive ideology and same-sex marriage has declined. And I'll just point out, Dominic, uh, specifically with the PCA and what what uh, what we are battling right now inside the own denomination. You mentioned in this article that all of this started with the Church of Scotland. Uh, you threw out the date 2009. You know, so you know we're talking you know ten, a decade, a little over a decade, and and here we are. And mm-hmm. so uh, that these statistics and 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 this uh, this essentially we should look at this as as potential foreshadowing, and so we should take. Uh, our convictions, and we should take the word of God uh, seriously because this is our future if we do nothing. Exactly. So it's good warning um, that to call to live faithfully in this world, and that's what God calls us to do. And there's, and we should never expect the world to be our friend. And the Scripture makes that very, uh, care, uh, very well known because it is in living in darkness. It's not part of the gospel. And uh, so the we're to live, as Athanasius said, contramundum, over against the world, uh, with the the expressions and the conformity to our desire to be conformed to the very likeness and image of God. So it's uh, good to be with us, uh, with you today, in this podcast and this weekly rendition of the Aquila Report. And trust that this has been helpful uh, to you. So whether you're listening to this before the newsletter comes out or whether you're listening afterwards, trust that it's been helpful and that uh, you will invite others to join us. You can forward the uh, podcast URL to others so that they can listen as well. And thank you for joining us. And until the next time, we look forward to you uh, having you with us and uh, God's blessings upon you.